acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's you and your God. That relationship. Your personal devotion to Him. We saw in chapter 13, our public devotion to God is simply seen in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. As verse number 14 said in chapter 13, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh in regard to its lust. Now that's true no matter where you are as a believer. Publicly, you are to have the Lord Jesus Christ put on. At work, at school, at home, in the neighborhood, you name it. Even the grocery store, right? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to do that. That's our public display, if you will. People see that and see our devotion to our God. And I hope that's exactly how we're walking. Chapter 14, we saw last week, dealt with our relationship to one another. Those who are devoted to God. We saw the simple statement, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord in verse number 8 of chapter 14. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And we are supposed to view each other that way. You belong to the Lord, and I belong to the Lord. We are belonging to the Lord. And so, there's an added uh, aspect to our relationship, not just between us and our, our God, but now it's, it's very horizontal, isn't it? In our relationship to one another, we belong to the Lord. Now here into chapter number 15, today we're going to look at accepting one another. Accepting, not E-X-C, A-C-C. Accepting one another as Christ accepted us. Chapter 15, verse 7 is going to be our key verse. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, we're going to read through this passage, um, and I give special emphasis here on those first seven verses. That kind of sets the tone of what we need to do. And notice as I go through this, the number of references to servant or service. At times you see things like, who we please. Those kind of phrases will keep popping up throughout the the, uh, chapter. It's illustrated in several different ways as it goes, but that's the heart of chapter number 15. So listen carefully as I read all through this chapter. There's uh, 33 verses. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy 
As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, come, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem, as round as far as Irukium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whether whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on the way there by you, when I, came first, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on the fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Heavenly Father, we've got a lot of words in front of us in this uh, chapter, yet the way that you teach us, you show us what uh, we need to cling to at this moment and understand and, and obediently respond to. And as we study this passage together, May your spirit be at work in our hearts, and may we be drawn in a uh, mighty way, in a uh, close-knit way, to fulfill what you call us to do. Help us with this passage today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a challenging concept that sits before us, accepting one another, 
as Christ has also accepted us. This is challenging. This is fascinating, by the way. Uh, when we saw in verse number 8 of chapter 14 that we belong to the Lord, that was a great thing to have seen, right? We belong to the Lord. How wonderful that is. Do you know that you've been accepted by the Lord too? You've been accepted by Him. Look at the end of verse number 7. Christ accepted who? Us. Is that true? Absolutely so. That's important for us to see. Matter of fact, this is, this is what we need to start with here as we put these together. Chapter 14 and 15 go together. When Paul was writing, he didn't stop and say, Oh, let me change a chapter number. And he put a 15 before the next verse, and he went on. He, he was writing a letter just like you and I would write letters. And I haven't seen anyone write me a letter with numbers in front of every sentence. But this is what he was saying in chapter 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. And then he starts chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And then verse number 7. Therefore, accept one another. He's on a theme, isn't he? In chapter 14, emphasizing that we belong to the Lord. That should be enough bond for us to say, okay, then we'll do it. But today he adds another aspect that makes it even stronger as we go. We are accepted by the Lord. We are accepted by the Lord. And we should be very motivated to respond. Because if I ask you, how much do you appreciate being accepted by the Lord? No doubt you think very highly of that, don't you? You like to know that, don't you? Accepted by the Lord. Do you realize what he has done to make that possible? That we should be accepted in the Beloved. What he has accomplished for us. Let's go over to verse number 7 here. Emphasize it for a little while. He says, therefore accept one another. Now, the next two words in my Bible read, just as. Or you might just have as. That is a comparison conjunction. Just as. According as. Just as. In proportion to. In proportion to. You look up the word proportion in the dictionary, you'll find it's used to compare things. Compare them in size, compare them in amount, in quantity, and things such like that. Simple illustration for you here this morning. You could uh, understand this concept, I know. You need to make a gallon of Kool-Aid. Alright? So you're going to follow my example. I'm going to teach you this morning how to make Kool-Aid. Now, the goal is to make yours in proportion to mine. So what you will have will be just like mine, right? So you get the gallon jug out. Usually it's an empty milk carton. Rinse it good. It doesn't taste great if you don't. All right? Rinse out your milk jug. Gallon size. You need two packets of Kool-Aid. Because if you understand, they're made for a half a gallon each. You can put in one, but it's really watered down. It's not. It doesn't taste so good. So get two packets of Kool-Aid. All right? You you. Fill the jug. This is the way I do it. I fill it about this deep. And I pour in the Kool-Aid. It's easier to stir it than the big thing. So you, you dump in your two packets of Kool-Aid. 
So if I've done that, you're to do that too, right? It's in proportion to what I'm doing. And then I get out the sugar and I add six cups. You may say, it's going to be pretty sweet at this point. No, I'd never put six cups. But if I put six cups, what are you supposed to do? Six cups, because you're doing it in proportion to mine. So how mine turns out is the way yours would turn out. You see? It will have the same, even though it will be something we don't want to drink, no doubt. <laughs> Some people might. <laughs> I might try a little bit of it, but then I'd be hyper the rest of the day, probably. So, here's the concept of proportion. When we say just as, as is mine, so is yours. Got it? That's the concept that we're looking at here. When we say it is a comparison conjunction, it's meant to look the same. Now, let's look back at verse number 7 and understand. When it says, accept one another, then he uses that phrase, just as. And all of a sudden the standard is set before us. Christ also has accepted us. We are to accept one another according as, in proportion to. Uh-oh, can you see where this is going? In proportion to the way Christ has accepted us. Now, the right way to do this is to look at the example first. So we're going to start backwards on our verse so we can see what we're to copy, what we're supposed to be doing. The simple statement is at the end of verse number 7, as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. Now, that is exactly the same word we saw in chapter 14, verse 1, where we were told to accept there too. The, the idea in chapter 14, verse 1, accept the one who is weak in faith. You were to Call that one alongside you, is the idea. Paralambano, to take him to your side. To take him to your side, to, to admit him. Many times it's used with the concept of friendship or hospitality. You're to take him unto yourself, is the word. That's what Christ has done for us. It's kind of a, a remarkable phrase, but you'll find it in John in that passage, 13, chapter 13, 14, 15, Jesus called his disciples friends. Even while they were there squabbling among each other, who gets the best seat, and all those other things. Even while they didn't have clean feet, he called them friends. He used that phrase. We are welcomed into a relationship with him. Now, he illustrates this in two ways. In verse number 8 and verse number 9. In verse number 8, he says, to the circumcision. He's a, it's a reference to the Jews. Now, this is a remarkable statement. He has accepted us. Christ has become a servant through the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to their fathers. The Old Testament is full of promises God has made to this specific group of people. I am a firm believer he will fulfill every single one of them. He will. He, he's made it to Abraham. He's promised him a land, a place that he will inhabit. He's made uh, a promises of blessings as well that will affect the whole world. All these promises we know are true. They're kept for us in God's word. It's stated there as God had said it. He gave them a unique privilege. A unique privilege of knowing him. 
He gave them a unique privilege of serving Him and worshiping Him. But we also read the Old Testament and said they turned their back on Him. They, 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 they spurned His invitation. They, they walked away from His truth. We know they were lost. We know they were sinful. They were alienated from the God who wanted them to be close. Did God reject them for their sinfulness and for their stubbornness? Even while we're marching through this part of the New Testament, He loves them. And He will keep His word to them. Did He cast them off forever because they refused to come to Him? No, He didn't do that. It's a remarkable thing we read of our our God. Like in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, or chapter 1 rather, verse 1 and 2, he says, God who spoke long ago to the fathers in many prophets, in many portions, in many ways, they didn't listen. In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. God sent his Son to that people that he had promised so much to. God sent his Son to them. There's a parable in Matthew chapter 23, 21. Rather. Let's go over there for a minute. Matthew chapter 21. This parable probably paints a picture very well for us to see. Chapter 21 of Matthew, go all the way to verse 33. This is the way Jesus told it. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? Many times when we read this parable, and I know you've seen it before, we focus on the evilness of those who rented the vineyard. And they were evil, weren't they? What they did was incredible. Consider, though, from the other side for a few minutes. Was there evidence that the uh, vine growers, the ones who were renting here, were rejecting that landowner? Yes, pretty strong evidence. I mean, they killed people. That's pretty clear evidence there. Did they ever consider the fact that they had their jobs because he planted the vineyard? Did they ever consider that they had the provisions for a good harvest there because he had care in setting it up so it can produce? Did they ever consider the fact that he gave them the right to harvest? What came from that vineyard? 
Did they ever consider the fact that he truly owned it? It belonged to him? Did they ever consider the fact that his servants were representations of his authority? And harming them was making a statement of their attitude toward the landlord? If you were the landlord, would you have sent your son? Our reaction to the story is very much like that last verse there that we read. Calls us to an action, doesn't it? We're angry toward the the renters. We have a pity for the owner. And what was lost, especially in losing his son. But this is quite a picture because it is spoken in a parable what God has actually done for his people. He sent his son to a group that had rejected him and had killed his prophets. He sent his son to reconcile the people. Understand, he sent his son to reconcile the people to himself. Knowing they would reject his son, knowing that in that rejection they were rejecting him too, they would reject his way of salvation. He knew all these things. And yet Jesus Christ comes into the world in Mark chapter 10 and says, Even so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Understanding it all, he came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is what is said in Romans chapter 15, verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. He did that, didn't he? He became a servant to them. On behalf of the truth of God, he came to be a servant. To confirm the promises that God had made to their fathers, he became a servant. Now, the fact that they rejected the truth did not prevent him from giving himself to them. He became a servant even to those who had rejected him in order to restore a relationship with God. What about those that we know who reject the truth? You know folks like that, don't you? They just reject the truth. They reject the word of God. They become stubborn, even in their sinfulness. Would we, be, would, we, would we consider becoming servants to them in order to reconcile them to God? I think we would if we were to accept them in proportion to the way Christ has accepted us. Verse 9 of Romans 15. Also for the Gentiles to glory, to glorify God for his mercy. This grammatically is the sentence that follows verse number 8. Speaking of Christ becoming a servant. Christ became a servant to the Gentiles too. He became a servant to them too. That God would get the glory for the mercy shown to them. We Gentiles, and I could say this because I am one. Do not deserve the glory of God or the mercy of God. We do not. 
Matter of fact, if we go through Scripture's depiction of the Gentiles, we would find ourselves to be listed on every page of Scripture practically as to the pagan ways that we live by. Over and over and over it says how, how far we were from the truth and from righteousness. Even Jesus said to the Jews, Don't pray like a Gentile! Wow! Why? When you pray, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose with their many words they're going to be heard. Are we really like that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he describes Gentiles as sacrificing to demons in places of worship. Incredible. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, I'm going to read you this passage, verse 17 through verse number 19. He gives us quite a picture of the Gentiles. He says, For this I say and affirm together in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality of, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You could write in the margin, yuck! That's his description of the Gentiles. Do you know that even in Matthew, when Jesus told of his coming death, he said, I will be handed over to the Gentiles. He says there that they will mock him, they will flog him, they will crucify him. So I want to ask you a simple question. If you step back from all this and say, who wants them? Gentiles. If that's the description of a Gentile, who wants them? God does. God does. Romans 15, verse 9. By His mercy, He saved Gentiles. Christ came to be a servant to the Gentiles that they may be saved by the mercy of God. Christ accepted them, called them to Himself. And look at what changed all of a sudden. Verse 9, the privilege of giving praise to God, to sing to His name. Verse number 10, the privilege of rejoicing with His people. Verse number 11, the privilege to praise the Lord. Verse 12, hope! Hope! And that's not all. You add verse 13 to this. The words of joy and peace and believing and abounding in hope. Guess who that applies to now? Gentiles saved by the blood of Christ. They could claim every bit of that. Christ has done that. Matter of fact, Paul says, my job is to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his particular ministry. And when we read verse 15 through, through uh, 21, and I, I tried to pronounce that crazy word in verse 19, he's talking about, I'm taking it all the way to the shores of Europe. That's what he means. I'll go to Spain with this gospel. I'll take it everywhere I can possibly go. Paul was a Jew. Through and through he was a Jew. God made him a minister to the Gentiles. A dispenser of the mercy of God to a lost, 
sinful people so that they might know that Christ has accepted them. The fact that he did this so thoroughly and he went to those who were so thoroughly sinful did not prevent him from giving himself to them. Christ became a servant, we read here. Even to those who are in pagan practices are an offense to the holy God. He was a servant to them. What about those we know? We know to be so thoroughly sinful, so pagan in their affairs in life. People we know like that, right? They need to know God's truth. They need to see God's mercy. Would we be consider becoming servants, even to them, in order that they may be reconciled to God? I think we would, if we were to accept them in proportion to the way Christ has accepted us. That's what we're reading here in this Roman passage. We could spend the whole morning just trying to focus on the fact that Christ has accepted us. It's a glorious truth. It warms our souls. It gives us something to praise Him about. But let's look close again at chapter 15, verse 7. The fact that Christ has accepted us, and we know He did, and why He did, and all the results that go with that, the facts are there so that we could compare to it. To do what? To do what? The same thing. Accepting one another. But what if they're stubborn? But what if they're rejecting God's truth? But, but what if they're sinful? What if, what if their practices are an offense to us? Let's start right here first. I, I don't want to put the focus on us, ourselves, But it is necessary if we're going to understand what we're supposed to be doing here. Number one, when you look at verse number seven, therefore accept one another, understand this in this part of the phrase. It is a command. It's not optional material. It's not a suggestion. It's a mark of an obedient Christian. We must do it, right? It's a command. Now I also tell you this, that it is required for us to be in a right relationship with God if we're ever going to help somebody who's not. Let me explain this. In verse number one, we are supposed to be strong if we're going to help out those who are weak. To help the weak, we have to be strong. If they are stubborn toward God, we should not be stubborn toward God. If we're going to help them. If they are sinful, then we must be the kind of holy people that can help them. It doesn't do any good if we're all laying in the mud puddle together. If if their practices are offensive to God, ours must be pleasing to God. It's of necessity that those who are strong are in that place to help the weak. It's a necessity in the picture. That's why he started the way. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So, here's the, the fact. Of necessity, 
we must have a right relationship with God. I could prove it doctrinally in a lot of different ways. But when it comes down to ministry, it's essential. If we're not strong, we can't help. We must be strong. So we can help those who aren't. You see, the focus is not really on us, is it? It's on them. It's on them. When young folks come to me and ask me to do their marriage for them, their wedding ceremony and stuff, I always go to make this simple point. The best thing you can be for your spouse is a godly person. That's exactly what they need. You be the godly person. And if they're the godly person too, what are you going to get? Oh, beautiful relationship. But many times we say, well, this is what they ought to be for me. What they ought to be for me. Let's turn it on. This is what we ought to be for them. And when it comes to the Christian walk, this is what we ought to be for them. We put the focus on them. And we complain all the time about what they are and why we shouldn't. We go through all these lists of things. The focus of the passage is on us. We who are strong. We have an obedience issue here in verse number 7. To accept them. We have to be strong in order to fulfill that. And that's our motive as well, accepting one another. Our world thinks that accepting one another, our world thinks that it means to tolerate people's behavior. Our world thinks that we need to put up with their attitudes. Our world says that we need to accommodate for them for their sins, to accept them like they are. That's what the world keeps telling us, and not to seek their change. But that's not the motive of chapter 15. Verse 2 says our motive is for their good. Our motive is for their edification. You know what edification is, don't you? Building up. We're to build them up in the things of Christ. We're to build them up. We don't leave them in their sinfulness. We don't leave them in their practices. We don't leave them in their attitudes. We push on for what's good. We edify. That's our motive. That's what we're building on. That's what Ephesians would tell you. If you look at verse chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, it defines ministry. It says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And here's when we know we've met it. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Our job is not done till they look like Jesus. So when will we be done? According to John, when we see him, we shall be like him. As long as we're on this earth, that's our ministry. Building up one another into the image of Christ. That's not accepting as the world calls accepting. That means, I will pledge to be the kind of godly person that reflects the image of Christ, so that I can help one to build him up so he can be that way too. That's accepting. The only way that's going to happen is, first of all, if we make a commitment to be godly, and secondly, that we have a commitment to Accept one another as Christ has accepted us. 
That's how it works. That's where our goal should be. If we set this goal, accepting others that they become more like Christ, then you're accepting them as Christ has accepted us. That doesn't leave room for weaknesses. That doesn't accommodate sinfulness. But it's for the good. It's to build up. That should be our motive. What about the cost? What about the cost? When we read that Christ has accepted us, what did that cost him? Oh, you know it. It's his life, right? He gave his life that this might happen. Is it going to cost us something, maybe? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. When we think of all that Christ endured for us. Isaiah 53. Wow, what a chapter. What Christ has endured for us, that we might be made right before God, that we might be forgiven. How often we, we have a willingness to go so far. Or I'll give them five dollars, but a hundred, that's different. I'll give them twenty minutes, but three years of my life is a big thing to ask for. You see the differences? We are willing, I know that. We would go this far. And in our minds we set our little barriers, don't we? Our little fences around there and say, this is a parameter where I'm comfortable in accepting somebody. Christ and his cost is what the proportion is we're called to. Doesn't that just floor us? Oh my. Well. So what if they reproach you? They reproach the Father. So what if we're ridiculed? What if you're picked at for trying to help up another person? Do you think it was worth it to Jesus to die for people like you and me? Was it worth it for him to go through all the shame and the pain? When in Hebrews it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, What was that joy? I get to go home. I get to leave this wicked world. I want to get... That's not what he's talking about. The joy was what he knew would bring about, come from his death. Believers in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, that's what he anticipated. He will see his offspring, and he will be satisfied. Hebrews 12, verse 3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So listen to these words. Paul writes again in chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Imagine what that looks like. We are accepted by Christ. And we are. We rejoice in that. We are growing in Christ. And we should be. We see our brother and sister in Christ struggling. We come to their aid. We don't tear them down. We build them up. So that they're strong in Christ. And so are we. 
Do you know what you get from all this? I love this little verse. It's tucked right in the middle of all this in verse 6. So that, with one accord, you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it worth it in the very end that in one accord and with one voice we give praise to our Father? I think it's such a beautiful thing. So I ask you again, is it worth it? Accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Boy, that's a lot to swallow. But it is our call, isn't it? It is our call. If you, if you wonder, Lord, what would you have me to do? Talk to him about it. Matter of fact, we will right now. Heavenly Father, as we, your children, sit before you, we are so blessed, and we know it, for what you have done for us. Your word is loaded with comments about your love for us, and your grace and your mercy to us, and how you have changed us, and changed us forever. Because of Jesus Christ and his blood applied to us, we have come to know you as both our Savior and our Lord. You have changed us, and we thank you, Lord, for it. But you didn't change us just that we might have another cause to praise you. You changed us so that you might plant us here in this world among others who need to be lifted up, their knees need strengthened, their walk needs corrected, their, their weakness needs to be made strong, their, their uh, relationship needs to look like Jesus Christ. You have called us to an incredible ministry of accepting one another. May we not miss that point today. May we not just see ourselves and you as an isolated relationship, but see the horizontal side of what you called us to be, that we might raise up our brother and sister in Christ, that they too might look like Christ. You have given to us a ministry one that I trust will be found faithful in. Work in our hearts, Lord. Change us where we are, that we may be strong, we can pick up the weak. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.